next, before I get going here, uh, I want you to know that next Sunday, the 19th, at 5.30 p.m., we're going to have a lead team rendezvous. So it's specifically geared for those who are in leadership here on teams, volunteering in any kind of way, serving the body. But it is totally wide open for everybody here. And that'll be a place where I get to sit down with you guys and lay out this vision, if you will, that way of, of carrying on the mission of the church in this ever-changing world. So next week, the 19th, uh, at 5.30 to 7 p.m., we're going to have that. You'll see some more about that come in your email and on Facebook and stuff like that this week, but I wanted to let you know that here. Okay, if you could transition with me. Uh, in your hearts and minds, and we come to this place uh, with Jesus hanging on the cross. We left, we left off in the story last week there, and I want to open with an anecdote from my own life, and then we'll go into it, and today, the main focus that I want to look at, the thing that I want to really marinate in, if you will, is that statement that he makes, which is so profoundly confusing, the cry of dereliction, why have you forsaken me? So that's going to be the main focus today, but come with me now, if you would, back to uh, Pennsylvania and my life years ago, and it was this time of year. So it was this time of year, years ago, when I was in Pennsylvania, and I'm sitting on the edge of a field, and it's the morning time, and there I am, um, shaking and cold. I had been living in a small Mazda pickup truck, a little four-banger, and I had a canopy on the back, and I had built some nice wooden shelves on the side, and that was my home. It was pretty cool. I, I thought it was awesome. I could move around wherever I wanted to go. But I was homeless for a reason, and I had, I had been abandoned. I had been forsaken, or at least that's how I felt. People who were supposed to love me and hold me close and build me up when I was a child had accomplished just the opposite. I was made to feel low and stupid, like I was a problem for other people. I was rejected, alone, and worthless. It was early in the morning, as I mentioned, and if you could imagine it, there's just enough sunlight coming in, lots of dew on the plants, and so the whole meadow is sparkling and beautiful, and it's foggy, but those first rays of sun are coming in. It's just an absolutely beautiful scene, but I was, I was there on the edge of a field shaking, and I was chewing off my fingernails and spitting them on the ground. I was heaving in my abdomen, and I was absolutely about to vomit. I was in a terrible place. That morning for me was what addicts or alcoholics will often call a moment of clarity, where I had sobered up just enough to actually see a glimpse into my reality, who I had become. It was like my humanity had been lost in that moment. I was a hollow shell. And the consequences of my life, the way that I had been living, they were, they were registering in me in the most profound way. It was, I, I could almost see what was happening, but not quite. And while there may have been many causes, if you will, and our world is interested in that, I've done this, but what caused me to do it? There were lots of those causes. I've even sort of tipped my hand towards some of those. I, I, I saw this sort of uh, other people had brought me to this place. The truth was I made choices and they were impacting me. 
I had known God in my youth, but he was as distant to me at that point as the planet Jupiter. He felt so far away, distant, pain, isolation, loneliness, overwhelming, crippling feelings of being isolated and forsaken. Now, some would say that it was my sin that separated me from God. But now as I look back on that moment through eyes that are continuously being renewed by Jesus and his gospel, I think I would put it a little bit differently. I would say, I separated myself from God. And when that happens, that's what we call sin. I think if you're listening there, you can say, well, those are pretty similar statements. They don't sound that different. But I think they're very, very different in the way that it impacts our soul. One looks at sin as a sort of thing or a sort of object, some kind of substantive problem. And it almost sees it as though it's disconnected from the human will. Do you have sin? Yes, I have sin. We all have sin. We're all born with sin. You notice? It, it, it's almost like it's a, a mark on us or a, a disease or something. But the other locates sin into its proper place, which is the human will. And so it sees sin as a descriptive word for that place where I actually pursue myself first and God second, or pursue myself and not God at all. When I pursue myself first and God second, that's sin. When I pursue myself only and not God at all, that's sin. That morning in the field, I sat there contemplating my life. I was experiencing the awful consequences of gripping onto myself rather than onto the way of life that Jesus laid out. I think Jesus blew us up last week. He blows me up every single time that I actually think about him. And I mean, uh, uh, not just I have a warm, fuzzy emotion when I think about his name or something, but when I sit and turn my face to him and contemplate what he's doing, I, I start to be, I'm, I'm changed by him. He blows up our spot. And the focus last week was on the way that Jesus did not count his equality with God, right? His power as being the divine being. He didn't say, I'm hanging on to that and I'm going to wield that. Instead, he lays that down and he becomes obedient to the Father even unto death on a cross. He gripped on not to himself or to his personal rights as the divine God, but instead he gripped on to the wood of the cross and the nails of the cross. He gripped there. And he allowed a very violent and vicious worldly power to cut him, an innocent man, down. As we move into this next part of the crucifixion, this scene that we're looking at this morning, my hope is that you can grab a hold of his scarborn hands, that you'll be able to learn to walk with him and to love him more. That's kind of my hope every time we open the word. 
He resists the temptation. This is where we closed last week. He resists the temptation to come down from the cross. And he does this because he knows something about God that you and I have yet to learn. We need to continue learning this. He knows something about God that we are still in need of learning. He hangs there suffering in agony. And then three o'clock in the afternoon rolls around. And Jesus lets out a loud cry. And that loud cry is going to baffle everybody who heard it then and everybody who hears it for the next 2,000 years plus. And it'll continue to baffle every subsequent generation of Christians after us. The great cry of dereliction. And he says, notice, notice now, everything he's done to this point has been because he trusts the Father. He believes that God is with him. He's owning that reality and living out of that identity as the Son. And here he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How has this come to pass? There is a mystery in that statement that draws us deep into the life of Jesus. And we still cannot understand it. So don't be thrown off if you say, man, I don't understand that. You're not gonna. And that's the beauty of a theological mystery. It draws you in. But I thought Jesus was God himself. Doesn't God love Jesus? Is this a moment where God does not like Jesus? Is God mad at Jesus for some reason? Or has Jesus become so dirty by taking on our sin that God just can't look upon him anymore in this moment? Maybe it's something different. Maybe this is what was happening there. Maybe Jesus had walked our road of life as a human being. He faced all of our same temptations up to that point, all of the trials that we go through. He labored under the curse and suffered all that this life could bring. He had known the failure and the betrayal of his people, the hatred of his enemies, and the malice of arrogance. All through Mark's gospel, we've watched him walk steadily but painfully through the most searing pain that life can throw at you, going through every experience that we face except one, to die. He has not yet received the full wages of sin. He has not yet received the final result of disconnection from the life giver. For the wages of sin is death, and Jesus has not yet walked through it. The Bible teaches us a very interesting concept. It says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. And I think that this scene we're looking at right now in Mark is the most precise picture of what that means. It reveals what that idea is. He who knew no sin becomes sin for us. Jesus never stole the candy bar, but he experiences the consequences of, of stealing. Jesus never had the affair, but he experiences the consequences of adultery. He experienced the isolating, corrosive consequences of addiction. 
He experienced the consequences of pride and gluttony and violence and deceitfulness and on and on. He experiences the consequences. Imagine how you felt when you got busted for some kind of sin. The jig is up. You got busted. You're in trouble now. Jesus did not feel the guilt that we feel in that moment, but he does feel the pain and the consequence. He experiences that sense of loss from God. He experiences the deep pain that sin causes. Isn't that the greatest irony? Sin is so attractive and wonderful, and yet when we engage with it, it's so painful. And he experiences that pain for us. In this way, he becomes sin. He takes on our broken flesh. He feels what it feels like to live in this world trying to obey God's commands. He takes that on, and yet... He knew no sin in the sense that he never did it. He never stopped obeying the Father. He never turned away from the Father. This, as the author of Hebrews teaches us, is why Jesus can relate to you and I now in a way that God never could have before he became incarnate. A bunch of new stuff is happening with Jesus. It's phenomenal. God himself is learning something. God in the Old Testament related to human beings in a very specific way. And and people learned a lot about God that was very, very truthful back in the day, if you will. He knew us because he created us, God did. He knew us very well. I knew you while you were still in your mother's womb. I knew you before the foundations of the world. God knows us. But he had not yet become one of us. He could not sympathize with us for real. He couldn't do it. That's interesting, isn't it? So consider the word, just for an example, consider the word loving kindness. In the Old Testament days, okay, so this is before Jesus, the precise way that God shows his loving kindness to us is very difficult to understand. He seems so present and loving at times, like he's really with us. There's pillars of fire, and and, and he's there. And then there's other times that it doesn't seem like he's actually with us, and it sparks the, the psalmists and the prophets to say things like, how long, O Lord, are you going to turn away from us? How long will you not be with us? When are you going to come back? There's this weird sense, and as you're trying to make sense of what is God's loving kindness, You have some things to look at, and yet you're wondering. So we get confused by what's happening in our world compared to what God has said he's about. And it kind of freaks us out. But then when Jesus hits the scene, my goodness, you have this very clear picture, clearer than anything we've ever seen before, a concrete picture of God's loving kindness on display. And it blows up our previous impressions. Not all of them, but there's some things we've developed before Jesus comes that Jesus needs to rewrite. And by becoming God in the flesh, we can look upon him and say, okay, okay. Now I can look at Jesus and see what loving kindness really is. He's not any different than he was in the Old Testament, but now we see him more clearly He's just as loving and kind as before, but 
Beforehand, we thought that God's loving kindness meant that he could not be with sinners. Because of his loving kindness rooted in the sense of holiness that we also saw, we thought he could not be with sinners, which is why we've kept the Gentiles out of the Gentile court in the temple because they're so sinful. And we've kept them away from their house of prayer in the temple and turned that space into a den of thieves because you want to keep the Gentiles out. They're sinful, not for the loving kindness of God. And we thought that God's loving kindness for his people meant that he would never, ever want them to suffer, which is why they're so spun when they are suffering. You said you were loving and kind. Why are we suffering like this now? It doesn't make any sense. Well, Jesus comes in as what? The sufferer. And we're, we're drawn in to say, maybe God right now is not trying to just make us feel physically better. Maybe Jesus means it when he talks about bearing a cross. So we're, we're kind of blown up by the way we start to think of loving kindness. Maybe it wasn't that God in his loving kindness wanted to keep us from all kinds of suffering. We also thought that because of that, God would want to send a Messiah who would kill anybody who brings suffering on us. God's loving kindness means that his Messiah is going to destroy sinners. That's what he's supposed to do. That's what we think. So that's what we thought loving kindness was. But then Jesus' life comes and it speaks to us in a clearer way than ever before. Clearer than the prophets. Clearer than the old scriptures. Hebrews chapter 1 says this right at the very beginning. It says, After God spoke long ago in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets, in these last days, now... He has spoken to us through a son, his son. And then the author says this, and this is, you've got to hang on to this. He says, the son of God is the radiance of his glory and the representation of his essence. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. If you want to know what the holy loving kindness looks like, look at Jesus. Not to deny the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus doesn't contradict them, but in those places where you were like, what's going on here? You look at Jesus, you say, okay, I see this is what loving kindness is. And Jesus shows us a kind of loving kindness that is so much more powerful than sin. His love for the Father's will does not cause him to separate himself from sinners or to turn his face away from sinners, does it? Has Jesus been doing that at all in Mark's gospel? Everybody around him says, turn your face away from those sinful, dirty people. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. I created them and I love them. Sin doesn't have anything on me. And he walks right into some of the most unclean places you can imagine. For what? To heal. To bring restoration and redemption. One scene you can't forget is the Gennesaret scene where he, for the Jewish mind, there's some really unclean things, tombs, demons, hogs flesh, you know, they have these things. Jesus goes to the land of the Gentiles into a tomb to heal a demoniac and he casts the demons into pigs. Mark is showing you Jesus is unafraid of sin. He doesn't turn his face away from it. He walks straight at it and he brings healing. This is the Jesus we've been seeing so far. 
Rather than being disgusted and angry and vicious towards sinners, which everybody thinks he should do. Why is he hanging out with tax collectors? Why is he hanging out with those people? If he was really holy, he wouldn't do that. Rather than being disgusted and vicious towards sinners, he loves his enemies and he doesn't avoid them. So while we always kind of knew that God was filled with loving kindness, we kind of knew what that meant, Jesus, his life corrects some of our assumptions and impressions, and he shows us more clearly what this means. I think that's what the author of Hebrews wants us to understand when he says, this is the exact representation of God's essence. Pay attention. And he says something interesting to you and me, Jesus does. Those of us who think that his way of life just doesn't make sense in the real world. This is what Jesus said. You know, you look at Jesus last week on the cross and you say, come on. You're going to just let the oppressive, warring, dominating power of Rome go through and keep stomping your own people? I think we talked about how just 40 years later, Rome would come in and lay waste to hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children right in Jesus' own town. He didn't stop him. We say, that's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. And right when we say that, Jesus says this. He says, hey, I learned something about you human beings by becoming one of you. I learned something very, very important. Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect, made like you and me in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things relating to God. He had to do this so he could become merciful, so he could understand where we're at. God becomes something. God learns something. Hebrews 5.8, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He learned what it means to be a human being that obeys God in this world. That's amazing. He learned how difficult it is. Just think about that for a second. Think of, have you, we've all had a scenario where somebody who is never, ever, ever going to do fill in the blank, says, hey, Ben, go do that. <laughs> you know, have you ever had the scenario where somebody who will never do the action is still commanding you to do it? Here's God who has commanded his people to live in a certain way. And here's Jesus who says, and I'm going to do that too. I'm not just telling you, you have to do it. I too am going to enter into the human body, the human existence, the human being, and all that that entails. And I'm going to set myself into a sin-broken world. And I'm going to experience the same exact things that you experience. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus learned about what it is like to obey God in this world. Verse 5, 9. He says that by being perfected in this way. And that means completed, right? Jesus is not sinful, so he's not becoming perfect in that way. Perfect means completed. So by being completed in this way, he becomes the source of eternal salvation for those who follow him. He comes in, submits himself to the sinful world, and he becomes our hope for salvation. Again, in Hebrews 4.15, he says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. 
yet without sin. He who knew no sin became sin for our sake. There's that idea again. He showed us how God's loving kindness absolutely can and does embrace a broken, sinful human being without one shred of fear. He showed us that. He showed us an unbreakable bond between him and the Father. And he invited you and me into an unbreakable relationship with him. Unbreakable safety. Unchallengeable safety and love with him, bonded with him. I think that's profoundly beautiful to be able to enter into that. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. Well, that's nice, and it's good, and it's true, but now, if you're thinking about it, you realize, well, shoot, we're kind of back to the same problem. <laughs> We've got a big problem here. Jesus literally says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That sounds bad. <laughs> what do we do here? Well, I was taught that this is the place where the Father becomes separated from the Son because of the sin that Jesus takes on to himself. The idea is that in this moment, because here on the cross, Jesus takes on all that nasty, dirty sin that the Father has to turn away from him. The Father turns his face away. He can't look upon him. It's just too awful. But then I start going and I start really learning the Bible and these teachers of mine and professors and mentors, whenever I'm at church with them or we're singing worship songs, we come to that line and they just do this. I say, why don't you ever sing that one sentence whenever we sing that? They say, I love that hymn, it's beautiful. But I don't sing that. Why not? Because it taps into an ancient heresy. What? What are you talking about? Why do you, what's going on? They said, because if we believe that the Father and the Son and the Spirit were at some point separated from one another, then the rest of the Bible's descriptions about God come unglued. Father, Son, Spirit exist eternally with no beginning and no end. If there's a point in history where the Trinity breaks apart, our Bibles break apart as well based on all the, other reason, all the other passages and ideas that suggest that can never, ever, ever happen. Everything that Jesus experiences in the flesh, God himself experiences as well. So Jesus, the Son, doesn't get separated from the Father. Well, okay, that's, that's perfect, right? Let's go home. <laughs> that's simple. Okay, I get it. No, I think you say, that. how exactly does this work? Can you try to bring some clarity for me, Ben? And I would say, no, I can't. That is a 2,000-year-old question, and it's not going to get solved today, and it's not going to get solved anytime soon. It's the mystery that I talked about up front. Sometimes we think of mystery as, oh, man, this is confusing. Mystery, who knows? I don't care. That's not it at all. The mystery of, of the incarnation is one where we say, Okay, I know it's not this. I know it's not that. What exactly it is, I'm not sure, but man, I'm so interested. How does this work? How can Jesus say that God has abandoned him if God hasn't really abandoned him? Who's the abandoning? Is, what's going on here? Well, I think the Bible teaches us to enter into this mystery, 
to walk into it. My Father, Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer. My Father, he says, may these disciples and all of the Portlanders in 2017 who will believe in me because of what these disciples teach them, may they all be one with us as we are one. May they all live in this kind of unbreakable harmony that we love and that we share, the kind of unbreakable harmony that you and I and the Spirit share without end. There's a deep Trinitarian understanding, if you will, in that high priestly prayer, and we have this sense that their love together is eternal. So Jesus does pay it all. Jesus does die for our sins. Jesus does set in the place and experience the consequences for every thievery and every adultery and the addictions and the pride and the gluttony and the violence and the deceitfulness. Yes, it is true that Jesus' sacrifice pays for those sins. That's absolutely true. But it also defeats evil. Jesus of Nazareth submits himself to evil and it destroys him, but it doesn't destroy the Trinity. The Trinity is not broken apart because of evil. The Father does not turn away his face from Jesus in the least. Jesus is the exact representation of the essence of God. And he has showed us all through Mark that sin has no power over him. He has shown us all through his life and teaching and discipleship and miracles and everything he's done that sin has no hold over him. He can't be controlled by it. Instead, he holds sinners close to him and he heals them. Evil doesn't break up the Trinity. The Trinity breaks evil. And that creates something very new for human beings, for you and me. When Jesus shows us that he is the one who can defeat sin, he shows us that our sin can no longer keep us outside of the love of God. And that's exactly what I felt at that field in Pennsylvania years ago. My sin keeps me in an isolated place. I cannot be anywhere near God. He literally, Jesus literally invites you and me both to enter the very life of the Trinity through Jesus. You ever think about salvation that way? I always thought about it just as I I have done bad things, Jesus pays for them, I get to go to heaven. Good. That's not wrong, but think about it this way. The Trinity has always been existing in perfect safety and love, indestructible. And Jesus' death, what he's doing right now in Mark, opens a door for you to enter into that kind of life. What we are witnessing here on the cross is unimaginable. It's unfathomable. As Jesus breathes his last, finally putting death in a grave, he is creating a holy entrance into the unbreakable life of God. And so no, with the historic Christian church all the way back through the great fathers and the councils, you and I can recognize that there is no separation of the Son here. The power of sin is not strong enough to break apart Father, Son, and Spirit. So what is Jesus saying then? Because he's certainly saying that he's being abandoned. You have forsaken me, he says. You have abandoned me, he says. Implied, I was with you before and now I'm not, he says. 
I want you to feel this isolation now. This is, this is painful, but try to feel it. Understanding as a human being, we are all human beings, I'm pretty sure. There might be a few robots, but I think we're all people. You think about your human existence and the times where you have felt the most isolated. You understand that life is more than a heartbeat. It's more than having eyes that still blink. Your life is more complex than that. And I would suggest that isolation, so if, if all you are is a heartbeat with blinking eyes, isolation is neither here nor there, whatever. You can still breathe and drink and eat and whatever. I have a close friend who spent the first year of his life as an infant in an incubator, never had the touch of another human being the whole time. Psychologically, emotionally, and physically, he's been permanently damaged just because of isolation from others. You can do a little bit of research on what isolation does to human beings. You've all felt it. Consider the day that your spouse moved out, the hollow isolation that you felt, or when he broke up with you or she broke up with you. Pain. The abuse that you maybe suffered as a child that wove into your deepest beliefs, even beliefs you don't think of with English words, that you are not worthy, that you're filthy, that you're dirty, that you're nasty, that you're unlovable, that you're worthless. Many of us have had those experiences early, early in our life, and they lead us to a place of isolation Think about the way that it finally registers to you when you recognize for real that your loved one is gone. She is dead. He has passed away. The isolating feeling that you experience is the experience of the consequences of sin. Mark's progression in his literature is so dark up to this point, is it not? One by one, all of the people who said that they love Jesus are falling off the story. One by one, they're rebelling against him, betraying him, or just sort of vanishing into thin air. And here, he hangs alone on the cross. This is a major characteristic of Mark's story. Jesus is hanging here alone in isolation. And the pain that he senses in this isolation is so agonizing that he feels a massive distance from God. But there it is. And that's a way that you can begin to enter into the mystery. We can see how he feels it in his flesh. He can sympathize with us because we feel it too. He feels it in his incarnated body. And as the Son, He remains connected to the Father and Spirit. But in the flesh, He feels the same thing we all do, which is alienation and disconnection. But as Jesus of Nazareth, who is, who is only kind of eternal, okay? Ha! <laughs> Hang on. The Son is eternally existent. No beginning, no end. But Jesus of Nazareth was born on a day. We're going to celebrate it here in a couple months. He was born, and so he had a beginning point. So in the body, Jesus is not eternal. Now, he'll live eternally in the body now, 
but he didn't exist before the first Christmas, right? So in the body, he does experience things differently than the son. I'm, get, I'm treading on some really thin ice here theologically. It's really hard to talk about this stuff. But I want you to see a difference between the eternal son and the human being, Jesus of Nazareth. Not as though they're different beings, but now you can see how he can feel the isolation without actually being isolated. He feels that same isolation and disconnectedness that you and I do whether we're weeping on the edge of a Pennsylvania field in the morning or just living another day in Portland. The consequences of sin that he's taken onto himself are so intense that he feels, I think, like we do, and he feels like the psalmist in Psalm 42. You remember how it opens up? Just like a deer who's dying from thirst, a deer panting for water, just like that, so my soul longs for you, O God. Why are you downcast within me, my soul? Why at such turmoil within me? My tears mock me and they say to me, where is your God? Isn't that what the Roman centurions have said to him as they crucify him? Where's your God? If he was here, wouldn't he help you? Have you ever felt this way? I've shed a few tears this past week. And in those moments, I did not feel the loving, kind, warm presence of God. But also look at what's happening to Jesus as he says these words. Yes, he feels distant from God, but is he actually distant? When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land. Who's doing that? I don't think it's some kind of supervillain who's blocking out the sun with a contraption, right? God is darkening the skies. Jesus cried out, it says, with a loud voice, and he breathed his last. And the temple curtain was torn from the top to the bottom, torn in two. Well, if he just breathed his last, who's doing the curtain tearing? I guarantee it's not people. It's not Jesus. Even if it is some kind of eclipse, and it probably was some kind of eclipse back in the day, we know God's hand is controlling it. We know God is in it, and God is very present. God is tearing the veil. God's darkening the skies. God is not distant. And I don't think that it was Jesus. I don't think that it was Jesus himself who was ripping that veil in half. That happens right after he dies, doesn't it? I think Mark gives you a few cues to let you know that the cry of dereliction is coming out of Jesus' human body and human experience. But God is still very much not abandoning him, not present. I would suggest that three days after this proves that God's not that far away. God's active in this moment. He's present and working. He's active and present in every one of our moments. The question is whether or not you're paying attention to him or not. Jesus is expressing the cry of all humanity. It is anxiety. It is depression. It is unbearable grief. Your creator does understand you. It does not give you commands and instructions just to see if you can follow them waiting to bust you and then display his glory through vengeful wrath against your dirtiness. Does that kind of God look like Jesus to you? 
He gives you commands and instructions to help you find real life. And by becoming a human and submitting himself to those commands that he himself has given us in our world, he learns about what it's like to trust and obey God in this world. He knows how hard it is. He knows that you fail. He knows why you fail. And he sympathizes with you because he loves you. And he wants to be with you in an unbreakable fellowship with the one true God, Father, Son, and Spirit that never break apart. He feels forsaken. You and I feel forsaken. We feel abandoned. And yet, deep in the mysterious magic of God's glorious will and his perfect creation and his unlimited, pure, and warm, and beautiful, loving kindness, there is a working God, an active God, who says, now is the time. Now is the time to let everybody who wants to enter into my presence, into my love, Now is the time to open up the Holy of Holies. Now is the time to let everybody who wants to come into my presence. Men, women, and children may enter. In the temple, there were multiple layers of access to God. We remember maybe from the story where Jesus is flipping money changers how it worked. But you've got the big temple sort of rectangle. Big open court. Anybody can be there. But then you come up to a certain point and there's like a waist high uh, fence with little doors in it. Now from there only Hebrews can go beyond. The Hebrews can move forward. Now it's male and female Hebrews but then there's another little fence and only the men can go forward. And then they can all be there but then there's another one and only the priests can go forward. And then finally, there's the veil that covers the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest can go forward one day a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and that's it. And it's been this way all throughout God's history where there was a temple. Entering into his presence is very, very, very restrictive. You can't do it. Only a very small handful of people will pull it off. And now imagine the Holy of Holies. It's 30 by 30 by 30. These ceilings are 33 feet high. So the Holy of Holies is a big cubicle space. And this veil is huge. And it's hanging up to block access from anybody. They say, though we don't know, it's about a hand's breadth thick. So think four to five inches thick. This huge veil covering a big cube of a room. By emphasizing God's holiness through this highly guarded separation, this is how God has been working with human beings so far, right? He's wanted to teach us something. My holiness is something to be reckoned with. My holiness is like nothing else in this world. I'm going to set up a visceral, tangible way to show you that my holiness is not of this world. So much so that only a select handful of high priests in the history of our people will ever even be able to enter into my presence. We learn something from that, and it's good for us to learn And then we learn something even greater in Jesus. We learn that God's holiness is not just unfathomably pure. We learn that it is also ours to attain. 
we learn that we, though we see ourselves as fickle and abandoned, are actually not. We are meant to enter into His holy presence. God's time of separation from human beings has ended. He has now become Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the high priest who serves God and he serves us by welcoming us into his very life. Mark 15, 37 to 38, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he breathed his last and the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. God's presence no longer hides. And now to close, I want you to imagine yourself, if you could, imagine yourself as one of those Christians sitting in your home community group in first century Rome, okay? You're in Rome. You're probably eating chicken. I'm sure you were eating chicken. And you're sitting there and you're hanging out with your home community people and everybody's chilling out and in comes Rufus and Alexander and they say, we've got a new writing from Mark. It's about Jesus. You guys want to read it? Yeah, let's read it. And you're stoked. And so you, everybody sits down and you read it and you read through the whole gospel, the good news according to Mark. You read it all the way through and now you're at this very point that we're at, Okay. And everybody's sobbing. You know they're just bawling their eyes out. Oh my gosh, I can't believe Jesus did this for us. And they're sobbing. And then, and then the reader reads that line. The temple curtain was, was torn asunder, was rent open, was ripped in half. And right when you're sitting there crying, and right when you hear that, you say, what? Say that again? Something just clicked with you. Why? Because of the way that Mark opened the entire story, back in the very beginning, he used that same verb one other time in the gospel. He used it to open the story, and it was in the moment when Jesus was being baptized. Jesus was coming up out of the water, and it says that God rent the heavens. He ripped open the heavens. He tore the skies asunder and the spirit descended like a dove upon Jesus. And this is not a tearing that's like opening your mail, okay? This is a visceral, violent act, powerful act. And when you see how Mark has set up this beautiful piece of literature, the whole story of Jesus from beginning to this point, you recognize that the whole story is bookended by the idea of a loving God ripping into this world, tearing the skies open, and then ripping the veil in half. He's chasing you down with power and love. He's not just sitting back there weakly saying, oh, geez, I hope they find me or whatever. He's ripping into your life. He's saying, wake up to me. I love you with everything I've got. I will go to the cross and die because I love you. I'm not looking away from you. I'm looking at you. I want to be in your life, and I want you in my life. He's coming after you to rescue you. He's opening up all access to his life. He is going to make you his eternal son. He is going to make you his eternal daughter, and he calls his church his eternal friend. We will be with him forever all up to this point.
The good news of Jesus entering our world. The good news of a humble carpenter who comes down on his hands and knees coming to dwell in me. The best that we could do up before Jesus was to cobble together an educated guess of what God was really like. And now when you see him, when you see him face to face, you see the exact representation of his essence. You see God. What his loving kindness really means for our lives. We're reaching in the dark. We're, we're, we're floating on glimpses from Torah and the prophets to guide our path. And now we can look at Jesus and we can say, this is what God is like. We can look at his personality and we can say, this is God's personality. God knows me in my innermost being. And this is how God loves me. God loves me like that. Men and women here, let that mystery draw you in to your own creator's heart. Let the love that you see in this moment, this love that Christ died for you, he breathed his last, let it change your soul. Grab a hold of his scar-borne hands and learn to walk with him in love. He did not grip onto himself at all. He gripped onto the wood. He gripped onto the nails with joyfulness. Open yourself. Let your soul open to this great love of God so that he can permeate your being so that you too can bear the suffering of this broken world, crying out only to God for help and knowing that the wood and the nails could not hold Jesus down. You and I will also watch our wooden tombs break open and we will be raised up into something unfathomable, unimaginable, unbreakable. Though we will all feel as though God has abandoned us, he has not forsaken us. And because of Jesus, we know that he is not. Pray with me. Father, forgive us, for we know not what we do. Forgive us for mocking you in our heart of hearts, which happens every time that we see your way of life and decide that it's not quite good enough for us. Please forgive us when we see your pattern of true faith, hope, and love, and then we think it's too grandiose, it's too impossible. Help us to remember that you strengthen us, not the power that we can conjure up or the money or the might that we have, but you alone strengthen us. And in that strength, like you, we can do all things, including trusting that God has not abandoned us even when it feels like it has. It feels so much, God, like you have abandoned us, but you haven't. And when our souls are in turmoil and we do not know what to do, we do not know why they're so downcast, help us to stay in your life and know that we can praise you, our hope and our salvation. Amen.